presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. Wheat, eggs, milk, peanuts and other nuts, soybeans and seafood. All of these items can be integral parts of a balanced, healthy diet for growing children. Instead, some or all of these are off-limits for a growing number of children diagnosed with food allergies. Though the increase in food allergies is certainly worrisome, we're learning that some food allergies may actually be misdiagnosed. How can we improve our capacity to accurately assess food allergies and help many of our young patients tolerate and even enjoy a wider range of food? I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. David Fleischer, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and National Jewish Health Hospital in Denver. Welcome, Dr. Fleischer. Thank you for having me. Now, many studies have recently reported an increase in the diagnosis of food allergies. Do you think this is a true increase, or are we just testing patients a little bit more, or maybe both? I think it's both. I think that if you look over the last 10 years, the CDC has reported a definite increase in food allergy, an 18% increase in food allergy. So there's definitely been a true increase in, in IgE-mediated food allergy, but I think there's also been an increase in the overdiagnosis in food allergy. If you look at our recent report that came out at the allergy meeting, so I think there's a there's a definite mixture of both. So I think there's true increase in IgE-mediated food allergy, but I think there's been also an overdiagnosis of food allergy. And I think it goes into the fact that it's difficult to diagnose true food allergy. Well, just as an overview for our listeners, what kind of symptoms might we expect in a true food allergy? So if you look at food allergy, I mean, not every reaction that you have to a food is food allergy. So adverse food reaction can be anything from just having vomiting or diarrhea, or it can be from hives and edema or swelling, anaphylactic reactions. So there's a wide variety of reactions that you can have. So I think that's the complicated thing. So an adverse food reaction can be a wide variety of things. So I think that's a complicated thing. So if you, an adverse food reaction, the most common thing is an adverse food reaction can be anything lactose intolerance. A true food allergy means that the immune system is involved. So when the immune system is involved, it can be either IgE-mediated allergy or it can be non-IgE-mediated allergy. So that's where you have to kind of divide things with your clinical history. Would you expect different symptoms such as urticaria in IgE versus non-IgE or vice versa? Correct. So when you look at IgE-mediated allergy, the first thing that you really need to look at when you're, the most important thing when you're talking to a patient is clinical history. That's going to guide your diagnosis. And that's, and that's the thing with most, with most things. Your clinical history is going to guide where you're going to go with your testing. What about eczema in infants and young children? Because I see that commonly. Is that typically associated with an IgE-mediated food allergy? It is. So if you look at eczema, so about a third of patients with moderate to severe eczema are going to have possible food allergies. So moderate to severe eczema means that it covers about, you know, about half of your total body. So that does give you the increased possibility of having food allergy. What about family history? Is that important at all along with a patient's clinical history? It is. A family member has a history of food allergy or allergic rhinitis or asthma or some you know, atopic disease. That's going to give you a, a higher prevalence maybe having another atopic disease. So, again, that, that does play into the, the role of possibly having a food allergy. And then if you have, say, peanut allergy, if someone has peanut allergy, a sibling has an increased risk maybe having a 7 to 8% chance of having peanut allergy as well. So you're talking about siblings having risks and that they might run in families. How common exactly are food allergies? 
so if you look at in small children, about 6 to 8% of the population may have food allergy. And if you look at adults, about 3 to 4% of adults will have food allergy. And as you listed, the most common food allergies in um, children are milk, egg, soy, wheat, and peanut account for about 90% of food allergy in children. And then if you add tree nuts, fish, and shellfish, I mean, that really accounts for the majority of IgE-mediated food allergy. I mean, you can react to any food in your diet, but those account for the majority of IgE-mediated food allergy in children. So what do you think might be causing this increase in food allergies? You mentioned it was about 18%. Over how long of a period was that? Over the past 10 years, it's been about you know the increase in food allergy reported by the CDC and their most recent report that came out about a year ago. The leading theory out there is this hygiene hypothesis. The theory is that in the most simplistic terms, that the body can either fight off infection or allergy. That's the most simplistic term. So if the body is less busy fighting off infection, maybe it shifts towards allergy. Now, is it true then that the increase in peanut allergy has outpaced other food allergies, and why might that be? If you look over the last five to ten years in studies, it certainly has increased. In in studies by Scott Sischerer, peanut allergy certainly has doubled in its incidence, so it's increased from about 0.5% to about 1% in prevalence. So, again, we don't completely know but some of the theories are that vegetarians, the popular vegetarian diets has increased. Maybe there's some sensitivity that's increased by possible sensitization through skin, through peanut oils and certain creams and things like that. But again, we don't completely know. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. David Fleischer, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and National Jewish Health Hospital in Denver. We're discussing diagnosing and treating food allergies in children. So let's say if a primary care physician suspects a food allergy. What kind of workup should they be doing in their office, if any, before referring the patient to an allergist? Again, the first thing that you want to do is go through the clinical history. If the clinical history doesn't fit, then that's the problem. But the problem that with the studies are that we came out with is you have to be careful ordering the immunocapitalized blood test. If you overorder the blood test, you're going to overdiagnose food allergy. The problem with the immunocapitalized the blood tests are is they're they're not specific for food allergy. I think that's where the overdiagnosis of food allergy comes in. The blood test can determine the possibility of food allergy, but the only true test of whether you're allergic to a food or not is whether you can eat that food and react to that food. Okay, so that's where the problem is. So if you look at blood tests and skin tests, they can be falsely positive in half the cases. So the food challenge is really the gold standard of what we say, whether you're allergic to a food or not. You can use the blood test, we, the old colloquial term was the RAS test, as kind of a screening test possibly as diagnosing food allergy, but they're not the best tests. Pediatricians can use those tests to kind of as a potential for measuring sensitivity to a food. That's the problem is that it measures potential sensitivity or sensitization to a food, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to react to that food on a food challenge. But if the test is completely negative, is it then reassuring that it's probably not a food allergy? Well, you have to be careful in that case too because if you have a clinical history that you reacted with hives on that test, and you have a negative or undetectable, right? I mean, the, the term isn't really undetectable. You can't say, go introduce that food again. Because I've had patients that have undetectable blood tests. It means you're not detecting IgE on that blood test, yet you have a patient that had developed hives 
I wouldn't say go give that patient that food again. So you have to be careful with that patient. So the bottom line is if you have a clinical history that is convincing that you had hives that you have yet you have an undetectable blood test, the best thing is probably go have that patient evaluated by an allergist and say it's best probably to have that patient have a food challenge to confirm or refute that that patient really has a food allergy. So if you do confirm a food allergy based on the food challenge that you're mentioning, what would then be the the treatment for that? So if you do confirm a food allergy, whether it's on a food challenge or or any time, the recommendation is you should strictly avoid that food and you definitely want to give a patient an EpiPen and even a food allergy action plan. Food allergy action plan is where you're given the recommendations to avoid that food strictly and also to recommend that you carry Benadryl as well. And Benadryl should be given most preferably in the liquid or fast milk preparation because the tablet form is not absorbed quickly enough. So you want to usually give the dose in about one milligram per kilogram dose. So it's not just carrying the EpiPen. You also want to carry, have them carry Benadryl as well. Now, regarding trying to prevent these food allergies from happening in the first place, there has been quite a bit of discussion and confusion and maybe even controversy about whether it's you know, recommended to delay some of these highly allergenic foods, such as peanuts, until age two or three. What is the current recommendation now? The general recommendations are that we do not need to hopefully delay the introduction of egg until age two years, peanuts, tree nuts, and fish until age three years. The theory was that you could prevent these allergies, but if you look over when those recommendations came out in 2000, it certainly hasn't prevented allergy. It certainly, we think it possibly increased food allergy. And what I wrote in the recommendations generally is that for patients that haven't shown signs of any other food allergies or haven't shown signs of developing hives or, or eczema, is you can probably introduce eggs and peanuts and, and tree nuts and fish and shellfish at a younger age. I mean, if you look at Patients for pediatric patients should generally go through the typical weaning foods in a general order that they generally do. So, you know, they should have typical rice cereal and fruits and vegetables and meats and things like that are starting at, you know, four to six months of age. And if you start with those foods, they're typically not going to get to the more allergenic foods until they're, you know, eight to nine months of age. Milk should not be introduced, whole milk should not be introduced until they're one year of age for other reasons, you know, for the heavy solute load on the kidneys and things like that until they're one. Milk in other forms such as cheese and things like that can be introduced in baked goods and things, I think, at a younger age. Egg and baked goods can probably be introduced, you know, eight, nine months of age. Shelled peanuts should probably not be introduced for choking risk until they're much older, but peanut butter can probably be introduced around age one for, for most children. They may not like the taste of it, and they may not be able to kind of tolerate the taste of it until a little bit older. I mean, it, these things kind of have to be, for most kids, might need to be introduced on a kind of an individual basis. But if patients start developing hives for certain foods, I think an individual plan needs to be introduced. Or if they start developing eczema with certain foods, individual plans need to be introduced. Or if they start developing hives, Skin testing should be performed for those patients before these allergenic foods need to be reduced. I think if you look for these recommendations, they should come out hopefully within the next two to four months. They will be released on the allergy website and hopefully the pediatricians. Right now, they're being reviewed by our allergy board, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Board. On the flip side, I've heard of parents saying that they want to expose their children to peanut butter at an early age in hopes of preventing a food allergy. Is there any sense in that kind of practice? Well, I think we have to be careful with that. There is a study right now called the LEAP study, Learning About the Early Assessment of Peanut Study. It's it's a study, a five-year study that's going on in the United Kingdom 
looking about the, the early introduction of peanut uh, in the diet. It's a study that's going to be randomizing 500, about 500 patients, and it's be dividing patients that will be introducing peanuts about six months of age and patients that will be actually delaying the introduction of peanut. And the theory is that if you introduce peanut early in the diet, maybe you can prevent peanut allergy. And the, the premise was that if you look at patients in Israel where the actually introduction of peanut into the diet is much earlier, before age one, they actually give patients peanut biscuits in their diet. The prevalence of peanut allergy in Israel is much less than in the United Kingdom and the United States. So it's an interesting idea that maybe if you introduce peanut into the diet much earlier, you can prevent allergy. So I think until you get the data from that study, and there are about 40 patients they still need to recruit, so they're very early into the study, I think until we get that data, I don't think we can really recommend that. I think we need to get that information at this point. We still have to be careful with this information. If you look at, at studies, about 75% of patients will react to peanut on their first known exposure. So I think we have to be careful with our recommendations about how and when we introduce peanut in these allergenic foods. Could you tell us what are your thoughts on the use of maybe allergy shots for known food allergies, much like people get for environmental allergens or even oral immunotherapy for children with food allergies or adults with food allergies? So we're not using allergy shots for food allergy, but we are using oral desensitization techniques. And we think for a lot of patients, it's likely going to be safe, and we think it's going to be an effective desensitization technique. Whether it can induce tolerance, true tolerance, meaning that the allergy will go away, we don't really know. But we think it is a future treatment for patients, and whether it's going to be safe and effective in everyone, I think that's the future of what we're doing. But we are doing it in a lot of patients right now in milk and egg and peanut, and we hope it's going to be a safe and effective treatment for patients. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Fleischer. We've been discussing diagnosing and treating food allergies in children. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com. 